If you have a Bible with you this morning, we'll be looking at Mark chapter 1, verses 21 through 28. So I say to you, hear the word of God. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. And Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent, come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. And they were all amazed, so that they questioned among themselves, saying, What is this, a new teaching with authority? He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, I pray now that as we um, come and we start this new series on healing, that uh, we would uh, experience healing at some level. Some of us long for physical healing, some of us long for emotional healing or spiritual healing, I pray that it would happen. Uh, I pray that you would open the eyes of the blind and the ears of the deaf. I pray that you'd be in my head and in my thinking and in my heart and in my understanding and in my mouth and in my speaking. In Jesus' name we pray all of these things. Amen. Amen. So, as you heard in my prayer, um, basically in the winter or right after advent and up till easter every year typically it's our habit to preach through the gospels and so this year we are going to look at the gospel of mark but we're going to look at one particular aspect of the gospel of mark we're going to look at basically all the healing miracles in the gospel of mark and so that the title be healed right that comes from honestly that comes from a family tradition of ours When my girls were little babies, they used to stand on the end of my bed in our room and we would play this game called Be Healed where I would run up to them and I'd put my hand on their forehead and I would say, Be Healed! And they would toss themselves back on the bed. (laughs) They would stand in line to be healed, right? So the question I have for you, when we talk about healing and you're in church and someone brings up the whole idea of healing, what, what actually comes to mind when you think about healing? When you think about healing, is it, does it, is it more, when, if I say, what does healing bring to your mind? Is it like something you need? Like people uh, in a church this size, there are people out there who desire healing from something. Whether it's healing from a minor illness, maybe you have a cold, or it's a major illness like you have cancer. You have, you, a lot of us desire healing. Others of us may desire healing spiritually. Others of us may desire uh, healing emotionally. Maybe we've suffered abuse as children and we're trying to figure out how to be healed. And so when you think about healing, what comes up? You see, as we look at the, the Gospels and we consider the healings that Jesus performs in the Gospel of Mark, they're often repeated in other uh, Gospels, Basically, when you think about healing, there's two perspectives. One is your perspective when you think about healing. And and usually when we think about healing, we think about, frankly, we we tend to think about ourselves. 
And so when, as we go through these miracles and you're watching these healings, ask yourself, what is your own desire for healing tell you about yourself? Do you, do, do you even desire healing? Do, do you think it's even possible? Do you think God would want to heal you? I don't mean necessarily physically, but I mean in, in any way. So on one hand, our desire for healing and our thoughts about healing really say a lot about us. When we look at the New Testament and we see Jesus performing healings, they actually tell us a lot about him. And really the focus of these healing miracles is not sort of a how-to seminar on how to be healed by Jesus, but it's more what do the healings of Jesus tell us about him? And of course, ultimately, what does that have to do with us? So this morning, uh, we're going to take the first healing miracle in the Gospel of Mark. We're basically going to see three things in this uh, miracle, this healing. We're going to see it first as a renegade rabbi, that Jesus gets people's attention immediately. In fact, when you notice in the Gospel of Mark, Mark's favorite word is the word immediately. Right? And I, I, you've heard me preach on Mark before. Mark is sort of the patron saint of those of us with ADHD. Right? Because he says immediately Jesus did that and immediately did that and immediately there's a demon in the synagogue. And immediately. immediately he, he's bing, bang, bing, bang. He's all over the place. So in this particular one, we see a renegade rabbi where Jesus comes onto the scene and immediately people are saying, who is this? He's teaching differently than other people. We're going to see secondly the problem with religion. And I don't mean real religion, I mean the problem of religion as a way to save yourself or religion as a, as a thing that we do to just go through the motions. What's the problem with that? And then finally we'll see the power of Jesus, ultimately really even the purpose of Jesus in these miracles. So let's look first at the, this whole idea of a renegade rabbi. Notice in verses 21 and 22, it says, and they went into Capernaum and immediately on the Sabbath he entered a synagogue and was teaching, and they, astonished, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So since this is the first one in Mark, we're gonna, I'm gonna take things a little bit more slowly. We're gonna just work this out. So notice that the first thing it says, it says, and they went into Capernaum. Well, who is they? Well, the they he is talking about is Jesus and Peter and Andrew and James and John, who were from Capernaum. They were fishermen. Capernaum was this town on the north end of the, the Galilee. And basically, it was the hometown of Peter and Andrew and James and John. And it became, after Nazareth, it became sort of Jesus' uh, operating poster or his, his adopted hometown. Now, if you're Peter, James, or, or Peter and Andrew and James and John, and Jesus had just called you and he says, hey, let's go back to your hometown, you have to wonder what they were thinking. Right, because Jesus can make things a little awkward. And it's one, it's one thing for us to go, like, I, I remember I used to work for Eli Lilly and one of the trainers came to me, to, to, a national trainer came and my manager said, hey, we want this guy to ride with you and it's gonna be a great time. You're gonna learn a lot from him. And as he came, he came to my house and when he came to my house, we got to talk and found out where each, both of us were Christians. And that was cool. And so we, we shared a lot of things, and then we went to get out into my car to go visit doctors. And right before we got in the car, I said, hey, Matt, Matt was his name. He said, he said what's that? And I said, don't be a short-term missionary on me. And he said, what do you mean by that? And I said, you know, a lot of times people will spend their whole lives and never share the gospel with people they live with, but then they'll go to Mexico, they'll go to some other place, and they'll just preach like crazy because they don't have to live with the people after. He's like, 
okay. In, in other words, I was like, I know you're here to train me, but just keep your mouth shut. Because it can be awkward. I just wonder what these guys thought. Like, Jesus is going to go into their hometown. It would have probably been a little more comfortable if they would, had gone to other towns. But Jesus goes straight back to the place where they know people. And that's the most logical place to reach people for Jesus, is places where you know people. So they go there, and immediately they enter the synagogue. Now, again, the synagogue is the center of Jewish life in the New Testament. And what was the synagogue? If you remember in the Old Testament, you had the temple, and the temple ultimately was destroyed. But to keep up sort of the, the Jewish religion, they started synagogues. They were sort of satellite temples, if you will, all over the ancient Near East. Now, they didn't sacrifice there, but what they did was they studied the law, the Torah, and those kinds of things. And so that's where if, you were, uh, if there were 10 Jewish males in any city, they could form a synagogue where they would gather together and study the Torah and the people who taught the Torah, this is important, building up to Jesus' arrival, were these, these men called the scribes. Now scribes, we tend to think of scribes as just people like who just copy things. Well, scribes were a lot more than that in the Old Testament and the New Testament. They were record keepers, but they were also basically the lawyers. They studied the Torah, they mastered it, and because they mastered it, they actually taught it. And, and in fact, they were honored. Remember, Jesus uh, accuses them that they, that they care more about having the best seats in the synagogue. So basically, when, a, when a, a scribe would walk down the street, if you were just the average Joe, you would sort of bow in deference or get out of their way. Or if they came into church, you would make sure that they had the best seats up front, which... <laughs> what happened to that? <laughs> But the, the, the point is, is that they were, 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 on one hand, very honored by the people. On the other hand, we know from Jesus' interaction with them, they were very sort of full of themselves as well. And Jesus comes along, and it says they were astonished at his teaching because he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. So it was pretty typical for a visiting rabbi to come, and he goes to synagogue, and the, any visiting rabbis here would like to share, and Jesus apparently took them up on that. Now, everyone was amazed at Jesus' teaching because notice that it says that he, didn't, he taught them as one who had authority, not as the scribes. What does that mean? Basically, it means this, that if you were a scribe and you taught the Torah, you only ever deferred to the teaching of elders who had come before you. In other words, if you were a scribe, that, that what you would do is you would not just master sort of the, the law, but you would master other rabbis' commentaries on the law. So if someone said, Rabbi, what does this mean? You would never say, well, I think it means this. The, the, the Bible says, you know, thou, thou shalt not murder. What does that mean, Rabbi Allen? Well, the scribes would never say, I think it means you shouldn't kill people. They would say, well, Rabbi Hillel says, and they would quote some old timer, right? Or they would, they would say, Rabbi Jones says, and they would quote someone else. They would always get their authority from somewhere else. The difference between them and Jesus is when they say, Jesus, what do you think? Jesus says, here's what I think. Jesus doesn't quote other people. The, the, the authority of the scribes is always derivative. It, der it derives from someone else's authority. And we do that in church all the time, right? You're trying to make a case for something, and you'll say, well, John Calvin says this, or Martin Luther says this. We're trying to build our case. Jesus doesn't do that. Jesus says, here's what it means. And that the great example of this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? Where he says, you've, you've heard it said, you shouldn't, you shouldn't uh, commit adultery, 
But I say that if you've even lusted in your heart, you've already committed adultery. And he says, he goes on and on, right? You've heard it said, but I say. You've heard it said, but I say. Maybe the most dramatic example is in Luke chapter 4. Remember, he goes in and they ask him, hey, Rabbi, would you like to read the scroll? And he reads the passage from Isaiah about the, the one who would come to bring good news to the poor. And instead of, instead of saying, well, Rabbi Gamaliel would say of this text, or Rabbi so-and-so would say of this text, remember, he reads that passage about the Messiah coming, and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. Mic drop. It's over, right? And so they're astonished, not necessarily that his teaching was so good, we don't know how, if he was dynamic when he spoke. Or we, what we do know is they were astonished because he didn't defer to other people, but in fact spoke as if he were the one who wrote it or something. Little did they know. Right? Things are about to get more dicey. So in, in many ways, Jesus here is a renegade to the scribes. And it's going to set up that for the rest of it, the next three years, they're going to constantly be out to get him because they don't like this fact that he teaches with his own authority. And notice, he not only teaches with his own authority, but you also, we move into, we see the problem of religion almost immediately here. As verse 23, it says, they were 22, they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one of authority, not as the scribes. And immediately there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, be silent. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. So what's happening here? So it's, Jesus is in the synagogue and it says immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit and he cried out. Now, why would I title this the problem of religion? How, where am I getting out of that text? A problem with religion. Well, the problem is just this, is that the man in the text, we, we don't get the idea that the, he was a newcomer. In, in other words, they didn't say, and this guy came in off the street that no one knew. And suddenly, this, he, a demon started speaking out of him. This guy, for all we know, had been at that synagogue his whole life. He'd been at the synagogue maybe his whole life, even if he'd only been there for months or weeks. He had been there. Ever people knew who he was. And only when confronted with Jesus did the fact that he was possessed by a demon make itself known. In other words, this guy had been going through the motions. He'd been going to church maybe his whole life. But not until Jesus came did it make any difference at all. The problem with religion is it can't change you. The problem with religion is the guy could sit in a synagogue and he could go through the whole services and the demon wouldn't care a whit about it. You see, because religion can't change you, religion can't love you, religion only masks the real problem. You see, a lot of people go to church, a lot of people maybe go to synagogue, they go to sort of maybe feel like they're atoning for their sins or to think it makes God feel better for their sins. But the fact is, is religion, just jumping hoops and going through the motions, can't do anything to save you from your sins. Not until Jesus comes on the scene, not until Jesus actually confronts the, the darkness in our lives, can anything be done about it. It's interesting, I mean, as a, as a side note, that... Um, most of the demons that Jesus deals with are demons that show themselves at church. 
In other words, when we in church think about demonic powers and whatever, at least I can only speak for myself, you tend to think out there, you know, sort of out there in the, in the wilds is where all the evil lies. Well, in the New Testament, where Jesus found all the demons was in church. They were just there, and by church, I mean the synagogue. They were there going through the motions, and no one knew, knew the better for it. But when the gospel comes, it changes everything, because what the gospel does is the gospel says you can't save yourself. What Jesus says is you need to follow me, not, the, the, not religion, in order to save yourselves. And that happens today. I, I've, I know I've said this before in church. When I first started here, you know, I, had, I read a book and, and by Mark Deaver, and he said the biggest mistake that young pastors make in old, older churches is that they assume the gospel rather than clarify it. And so when I started, I thought, well, why? we need to make sure the gospel's clear around here. This is 14 years ago almost. And I was amazed that within a few months, people were in my office saying, we're tired of hearing about the gospel. We're tired of hearing about Jesus. Just tell us what to do. So if you think that doesn't happen in church or that this couldn't happen in church, I'm telling you, I, we've experienced it here. That when Jesus comes, he makes us either, either, either to deal with him. You can either... Uh, follow him or reject him but to just sort of be around him it doesn't work really that way he won't let it happen at least not for long so jesus comes along and notice it says that he was in their synagogue and the demon tries this sort of the, the oldest trick in the book right in the in the in the ancient near east if you knew someone's true name supposedly you could you could have power over them and so the demon tries two things. The first thing he calls him is he says, Jesus of Nazareth, what have you to do with this? <laughs> Cricket, that didn't work. Shoot, we know who you are. The Holy One of God. <laughs> didn't work. You see, because you can't control Jesus. And certainly demons can't control Jesus. But it is interesting that in the Gospel of Mark, at least, there were basically three groups of people. There are the disciples, there are the crowds, and there are the religious people. And none of them, really, until the end, have any clue who Jesus is or what he's all about. Even his disciples. I mean, they're with him, but they're with him sort of trying to figure it out. They're like building the airplane as they fly it. The ones who know who Jesus is without a shadow of, the de of a doubt are the demons. The demons know who Jesus is because one of the primary purposes that you find in the ministry of Jesus is to, to destroy the work of the evil one. And this, this, that's what this demon says. This demon knows exactly why Jesus is there. He says, what have you to do with this? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Now Jesus could have just said yes. But it says he does something much more dramatic as he tells the demon in verse 25, it says that, that Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent. Another way to translate that honestly is just shut up. Shut up and come out of him right now. And what did the demon do? The demon didn't say, well, yeah, I don't know about that. You know, I think we ought to, let's negotiate this. What does it say? In verse 26, it says, And the unclean spirit convulsing him cried out with a loud voice and came out. That Jesus, so you see what's happening here is on one hand, they're amazed that Jesus has authority, that he speaks as if he himself wrote the book. But what's going to be even more amazing is that his teaching is not just authoritative in the sense that he presents it, but it's authoritative in the sense that it actually accomplishes what he intends for it to do. 
So when he tells the demon to come out, it actually comes out. You know, the story reminded me of, if if you follow the news this week in Charlotte uh, on January 5th, I'm going to read you the headline. It says, alleged kidnapper chases woman into North Carolina karate studio, leaves in an ambulance. (laughs) It was the funniest story. (laughs) A woman ran ran into this guy trying to get me and they said, really? And a big guy came in trying to get her. And they dispatched him, called the cops, and he got taken out in a stretcher. That's what happened with this demon. Right? Imagine the demon possessed man. No one knows he's possessed by a demon. He just goes to synagogue like any other Sunday. He sits down, and then suddenly Jesus is up there. He leaves in a stretcher. He can't survive an encounter with Jesus because Jesus has all of the power and that's what's going to amaze people. So on one hand, you you see this problem with religion, it can't change you. On the other hand, the power of Jesus can. The power of Jesus can change you. The power of Jesus can change anybody. Notice the next few verses in verse 27. It says, and they were all amazed and so they questioned among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even unclean spirits and they obey him. Verse 28. And at once his fame spread everywhere throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee. So, did you notice this? Everybody was amazed. There weren't people there in the synagogue who were sort of like, that's interesting. Like, apparently he doesn't care what the other rabbis think, but it's interesting that he just cast out that demon and it just left. They didn't say that. They, they, everyone, it says all of them were amazed. All of them, whether it be people like Peter and Andrew or whether it be the scribes, everyone was amazed. And they questioned among themselves, what is this? What is this? And, and by the way, that's, that's the big question in, in Mark. What is this? Or who is this? Or can you believe it? And Mark, over and over again, the answer Mark wants from us, the gospel Mark wants from us, is yes. Because, because what Mark wants to say over and over again is, yes, you can believe it. Yes, you need to believe it. He says, this new teaching, he says, he commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And I think what, it's important, it's almost a throwaway line in verse 28, and it, it says that once his fame spread throughout everywhere, throughout all the surrounding region of Galilee, And that sort of takes us to the purpose of healing. I mean, if you look at healings in the New Testament, when when you and I honestly pray for healing, what do we want from that? Most of us. I'd say mostly if I pray for healing of, of some disease, I just want to be better. I just want to be relieved of my symptoms. I don't want to feel bad anymore. Or if my wife is sick, I pray for her because I don't want to feel bad anymore, right? I, like all, all the things that she does for me and helps me out, it's like I want her to feel good. I'm compassionate. But it affects me, right? So in other words, all of our prayers for healing at some level tend to be a little bit selfish. We pray for the healing of our friends or we pray for the healing of our parents, maybe that are elderly and sick. We pray for them, why? Because we don't want to lose them. And the question you have to ask yourself, is there any bigger purpose in healing? 
whether it's the purpose of healing our bodies or purpose of healing our souls, we tend to think that whenever something bad happens, we, we tend to, whether we mean it or not, but we tend to say, well, everything, we comfort ourselves by saying everything happens for a reason. Right? And, and I think that's true, by the way, that God works all things together. But the question is, is does he also do good things also happen for a reason? Is there purpose behind the good things that happen? Is there purpose behind actually being healed? And I think when you look at the New Testament, when you, when you look at the Gospel of Mark, what you're going to see over and over again, that one of the major purposes of healing in the Gospel of Mark is it's not only to show Jesus' authority and power over illness, it's not only to show his authority and power over demons, and it's not to, to just make the case that Jesus can change anybody at any time, but it's also to make the case that Jesus heals in order to increase his own fame. In other words, when Jesus heals someone miraculously, when he casts out a demon, it makes him famous. People can't help but go give testimony about what Jesus did for me. In other words, the purpose is, is whatever the opposite of, of selfish is, is selfless. People can't help but tell other people what Jesus has done. And so think about that when you, that brings us back to the original question. When you think about healing and you think about your desire for healing and, and why is it that you want healing? Is it just to be, is, is it about you ultimately? Or is it ultimately heal me Jesus so that you might become more famous? Heal me, Jesus, so that you might be more glorified. Use my healing that other people might be blessed from it. As we continue in this series on healing, I think we're going to be challenged sort of over and over again with that. Because every time, almost at the end, even when Jesus heals someone and says, don't go tell anybody, what do they immediately do? They go tell people because they can't help it. So as we continue in this series, be thinking about healing, be praying about healing. What is it that you need healed from? Have you ever really thought about that? Because I, I be, if I'm honest with you, everyone here, whether it's something physical or something emotional or something spiritual, you need help. And the question is, can Jesus provide it? Matt, uh, Mark will say yes, you can believe it. Think about that, let me pray for us. Father, I just pray as we enter into this uh, series on healing that you would heal us you would heal us whether it's with regard to our sins through the person and work and the the life and death and resurrection of jesus or, or for some of us maybe it's just miraculous healing of some disease but i pray in all of it whether you heal our souls or you heal our bodies that we would have in mind the purpose ultimately is that you you might become famous among the nations we pray these things in christ's name amen and amen.